Hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome. I'm your host, Joe Karen. And I'm Chloe Holsinger. And you're listening to Talk Clean to Me. We're back at the WeGoWise offices on a snowy day looking out over Boston, and it's quite nice. It's super pretty. So we have a uh, great guest today. We've been trying for a while to have him onto the show. I'm excited to uh, sit down and interview. Uh, ben, could you go? please go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Ben Blass. Um, I helped found Alteros. I'm the CEO and CTO over Alteros. So where I want to start today is not with the technology yet. We will get there. But how did Alteros come to be? What was the, the genesis of this company? Sure. Uh, so, so the... It's, it's a little bit, for us, it's a little bit hard not to start with the technology okay. because it actually started as uh, sort of a free time project for me during grad school, just working on the technology, playing around with an idea for essentially an, an airborne wind turbine, something to uh, harness much stronger winds. There was around, around the time that uh, I was finishing up undergrad, there was sort of the first uh, kind of extensive analysis of the high altitude wind resource and it, it basically it showed that it was this just huge uh, uh, you know powerful abundant renewable resource that nobody had figured out a good way to and how to high harness. how high are we talking um, like in relative to a typical you know ground-based turbine yeah so I mean basically I define high altitude as anything above what you can reach with a typical tower <laughs> okay uh, so starting from you know, four or five hundred meters up to kilometers, wow. um, and that and that actually that first study was looking at the sort of one to ten kilometer altitude range. Um, we we weren't shooting for that high. We were you know a little bit closer to Earth. We were looking at in the range of around six hundred meters mm -hmm. above ground. We um, actually brought the idea to a class at MIT called Energy Ventures, which brings together business students, policy students, and engineering students to go through the, the, the steps or the exercise of starting an energy venture. And then it ended up uh, co-founding the company with uh, Adam Ryan, who was the TA of, of energy ventures oh, really? at the time. It's a vote of confidence if the TA on your class on launching technologies wants to join your venture. Well, either a vote of confidence or I'm the only one who asked him to join. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So what is the core innovation of Alteros. What do you guys have? Yeah. Uh, so essentially what, what we've done is developed uh, what we think is, is the most reliable, safe, cost-effective uh, way to lift a heavy payload up into the air for long periods of time. So we've developed what's essentially a, uh, it's an autonomous aerostat. An aerostat is just a, a fancy word for a tethered blimp, just like the uh, the blimps you see flying above Fenway, um, and it's something that's been been used. The, the the military and governments around the world have been using aerostats for decades now to lift uh, surveillance and communications equipment. But what we've done is basically take those systems, bring some you know modern design capabilities, and and really uh, figure out a way to automate all of the operations. So while those uh, government aerostats need a crew of between six and 10 people, mm -hmm. uh, we're able to deploy them at a remote site with zero ground crew present. 
Um, and that, that really allows us to uh, pretty, make, make a pretty big shift in the economics of aerostats such that they can actually be used for commercial application. Yeah, so what I think is interesting about this, so is a, it's basically an airborne platform, right? But literally a platform. You talk about startups like I have a software platform, but yours is literally a platform and you can use it for different applications that we are... We are literally making a platform. <laughs> um, and you kind of see that in, in, you know, we got our start with airborne wind um, and actually what we're doing now uh, is in the communication space. But the, that core platform is essentially the same. Your core focus originally was these high-altitude wind turbines, which if our listeners haven't seen them, look awesome. So you should go take a look. I'm sh- there'll be some uh, resources on our website. Can you tell us about what motivated this shift from high-altitude wind to the telecoms industry? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so we were, as you said, we were, you know, we were trying to de- develop and commercialize the, the first high-altitude wind turbine. And our, our approach for that was really to kind of figure out what is the uh, smallest sort of the minimum viable product to bring to market. And we decided that we were going to go after the off-grid or remote power sector. So, you know, a relatively small system, we were starting in the 30 to 50 kilowatt range. We were basically competing directly against diesel generators. And when we started the company, oil was $100 a barrel. Um, And actually, right when we closed our our Series A in, in 2014, the as, as we all know, the price of oil just plummeted and, and you know, was that was not the best thing in the world for the renewable energy sector, at least to, to maintain investment and momentum in that. And, and you know, unfortunately, we were um, to some degree a, a, a victim of that. And, you know, when we were competing directly against diesel and oil is $30, $40 a barrel, it's it's pretty tough to compete against diesel. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the, the main impetus for uh, looking at what other applications can we uh, leverage this this autonomous aerial platform that we developed um, to provide pretty you know exciting value? So why were you originally targeting microgrid systems? The short answer: it's really really hard to go from nothing to a utility scale uh, airborne wind turbine. More than what we wanted to put in. Our approach was let's let's try to start small, get something to market as quick as we could, and then you know there's so much that you learn by just getting units in the field and actually actually doing it. And so we wanted to start small, learn all of those lessons up with the small system, and apply them as we scaled up. One one of the challenges we faced in in being able to sell into utilities is that uh, you know the energy you know the electricity that comes out of your 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 wall is really really cheap we might you know be frustrated at how expensive it is but if you actually consider it it's incredibly cheap um, and for us especially given that we're using this uh, this lighter than air platform there's very uh, there's very strong uh, economies of scale as you increase the size of it so for us to start with a smaller product necessarily means the the levelized cost of energy is going to be higher mm-hmm. and in, in our case it's too high to, mm-hmm. to compete with with grid uh, electricity. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at some of these remote areas that are powered by diesel generators, it's actually incredibly expensive uh, to keep those systems up and running. So you needed to find the customers whose levelized cost of energy exactly. was such that you would be competitive. Exactly. I'd like to come back to that pivot. Why telecom? You're 2014, the market isn't performing the way you need it to to have a viable product. 
you're starting to think about pivots at some point. How did, what was that process of looking at other markets like and how did you settle on the telecoms industry? Well, we, we sort of started by what, what all applications can benefit by lifting something up into the air. <laughs> um, and you can kind of look at what, you know, what industries use towers because uh, towers typically are there to lift something up into the air. So wind turbines obviously use towers. Telecom obviously uses towers. Uh, it also it also was sort of a natural fit because that's what a lot of the um, the previous aerostats out there have been used for. They've been mm. used to to lift uh, communication equipment, you know, repeaters, things like that, uh, to provide uh, connectivity to to our troops. Um, so it was sort of a, a, a natural fit. Interesting. Um, we also, I think, we're we're very fortunate in that our largest investor was SoftBank. Um, you know, they, at their core, you know, really started as a as a telecom company. Um, they've made a very big push into renewable energy. They're they're one of the largest uh, uh, investors and developers of renewable energy in um, in a number of different markets around the world. Uh, but when we were thinking about you know making that shift, telecom happened to sort of fit very well within the the, the wheelhouse of our yeah. largest investor. And so I think yeah. we're Seems very fortunate. Seems the stars kind of on the, aligned there. Yeah, that's great. What are the current technical challenges? Yeah. Well, I, I can let's maybe start with you know. We could kind of start with what we didn't know when we started. Okay, it, that'd be perfect. It, it, it turns out it's really hard to make a robust autonomous aerial platform. <laughs> it probably was more difficult than we realized when we set out, but that's probably just because we were, um, you know, naive or, or ignorant, one, one or the other. <laughs> uh, but I actually think that our naivete or ignorance served in, in our favor. I think that if we knew how hard it would have been, we might not have tried. Um, but because we tried and because we sort of stuck with it, we've actually, you know, we're, we're, we've developed the only autonomous aerostat in the world. And, you know, this is something early on we talked to a number of the, the large defense contractors who, you know, build and operate aerostats. And, you know, with the hopes that they would be able to provide some, you know, some guidance or some insight when we, when we went and told them what we wanted to do. They basically laughed us out of the room. Told us it's impossible. We've been doing this for years. You can't. You cannot automate an aerostat. It's it's just too difficult. Um, and we were, you know, we were fortunately too dumb to listen to them. And so we we went out and you know did it anyways. And I think at, at this point we we the the technology um, is is really sound. Uh, like like it. It actually works really well. And are you still targeting the same geographic markets as you were before? There are, so, so yeah, the, we're we're definitely still uh, still going after rural areas. You know, if you look at, you know, we're here in Boston and we've got pretty good infrastructure. And if you look at the the big urban centers around the world, they all pretty much have pretty good infrastructure, both energy and connectivity. Uh, it's really the the rural areas and you know, the rural communities that have been left behind and that, that have a much, much further uh, or longer distance to catch up when it comes to both energy and connectivity and kind of just infrastructure in general. Um, so our, our, uh, our mission is really to try to, um, you know, in a sense, equalize the opportunity between the, the rural areas and the urban areas by uh, providing modern infrastructure 
I've spent a lot of time in India and in traveling there, like you actually see how it changes people's lives. Like it, it's so, so essential to, uh, uh, for people to realize so many of the opportunities and without internet access, without access to all of the information that comes with that, there's just so many opportunities that you don't have access to. So when you're talking with people who know about telecom or aerostats, what about Alteros impresses them the most? Uh, I'll start with the aerostats because that's a much, much, much smaller group of people. Honestly, the response has been from that community, it, it starts with, um, you know, incredulous, like, what are you talking about? You can't do this. We actually, we hired um, our flight director as a former Marine. He was operating aerostats in Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and then most recently on the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, when, when he tells a funny story, when we first reached out to him, uh, he thought it was a practical joke. He thought there, <laughs> these guys are, you know, either like yanking my chain or have no idea what they're talking about. But I was like, you know what, if it's real, I have to see it. Um, and so he, he came on as soon as we convinced him that it was real. He was like, yep, sign me up. So it's autonomy then. The fact that these are truly autonomous yeah. aerostats is what blows aerostat people's minds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. On the telecom side, I think, uh, you know, the telecom industry is, there's so much sort of excitement about it and you always hear about new technologies, but if you actually look at the the you know the numbers in the industry the the overall revenue growth it's not great like there's a lot of excitement but it's really just clamoring for you know single percentage point growth and and one of the big reasons is that most markets have kind of maximized the number of easily accessible customers that they can serve and so one of the biggest areas uh for growth, and one of the most important from a um, just from a from a you know equalizing opportunity is actually being able to push into the rural markets. That's where the majority of you know there's four billion people living without without internet access, and you know a, a pretty significant majority of them are in rural parts of mostly emerging markets, but even even developing markets. I mean, you can go to uh, some pretty rural parts of, of the U.S. And it's amazing that, you know, it's the U.S. and there's still a shocking lack of, of connectivity options. Um, and so that's kind of a, a it's it's a major pain point. It's a known problem. And, and with traditional, you know, cell towers, it's just too expensive to provide service. And so when we, when we go to people, uh, tell them what we're doing and what it can do for them to, to help them expand rural connectivity, we kind of initially met with, with the same you know, incredulous <laughs> response, like, that, that can't be. Uh, and then as soon as we sort of go into some of the details, how we actually do it, um, both on the platform side and on the, uh, the telecom payload side, um, they get pretty excited because it's, there's really not a lot of, you know, there's really not a lot of uh, other options to cost effectively serve those real rural areas. Hmm. So just to recap a little bit here, uh, your approach to rural electrification is from a business standpoint there because there's so much potential business in those communities um, rather than a humanitarian standpoint. And you can do that approach because your system is so much cheaper than so many other systems. So 
Uh, th those two aren't the, the sort of humanitarian approach and, and business approach for me. They, you cannot separate them because yeah. if it's purely humanitarian and, and it's a, a, a philanthropic, uh, purely philanthropic approach, it's never going to scale. Like this, this is the world we live in. Money is what scales things. And so if you want to actually address the biggest humanitarian problems, you have to find a way that will, that will, that, that leverages capitalism to make it happen. And so that's kind of always how I approach problems is, you know, I, I, the, the, I, I first, you know, I first think about it, you know, what is, what are the most important problems to solve? And for me, that tends to take a, either an environmental or a humanitarian bent. Um, but to actually solve them, you have to bring in the, the business side of it. Otherwise, there's just no way to scale it. Cool. So I want to talk a little bit about the <clears throat> recent round of funding you guys raised from SoftBank back in August. So $7.5 million. What do you plan to do with that? Is, is that a lot of money for what you guys need to do? So the seven and a half million, basically, what what we're going to do with that is is uh, deploy basically the first commercial. We, we call we call it a super tower, um, you know, because it's like a tower, just bigger super, and better. Just super. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, with that seven and a half million, we're going to be able to actually deploy the the first commercial super tower, um, kind of show to the world that this actually works. This is an option. Uh, for for all of the carriers out there, that's really a, a, a big inflection point for us because you know because we're doing something that's so uh, different from what all of our customers are used to. It's it's you know you know they, they really want to see see the the you know the proof is in the pudding. They need to see something out there in the field. And so uh, with this with this round, we'll be able to actually deploy something, show it in the field, and then it's just a very, very different conversation. So that makes sense, but you had to convince SoftBank in the first place that this idea was worth their investment. How did you convince SoftBank to invest in mm -hmm. proving this concept for other potential customers? Yeah. So I mean, SoftBank was our even prior to this round, they were our largest investor. Um, I think I think we had made enough progress, gotten enough real uh, real customer interest, customer uh, uh, traction, um, and excitement in in the the super tower solution that you know SoftBank really wanted to see uh, see it happen. And so you know they 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 were. You know they've been a fantastic partner, and they were willing to provide the capital to get us to that inflection point. You know, seven and a half million is—it's you know, kind of all relative. It's not a huge amount of money. So I'm hearing potentially three things that were important for SoftBank. One, they had worked with you guys in the past, and they liked you as a team and as people, and thought you were capable of doing this. Two, you had shown interest from potential customers, who so you had talked to enough people who said yes, if this existed we would buy it. And three, the technology was along far enough that you were able to convince SoftBank that this is a technically viable solution. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cool. So I assume SoftBank as part of this uh, either took a larger part of equity or um, as part of the strategic partnership got some kind of royal, um, you know, uh, rights to the technology. Was it difficult to negotiate that? How involved were you with that? And was it difficult to kind of give away more of your company to someone? 
it, it's it's I mean that that's sort of how it works. Like y- you can own a hundred percent of a very very small pie, or you can own a smaller percent of a much much larger pie. Um, and so by bringing in partners like SoftBank, uh, you know they're they're and especially with strategics, they're not just you know. Um, putting capital into the business, there's a lot of other value uh, in, in what they're doing. Um, and yeah, for us, it was an easy answer because, you know, yeah, we're, we're handing over some equity in the, in the business, but we're going to be able to make a much, much more valuable business by doing so. You, I assume, don't have the legal expertise to negotiate with a company like SoftBank. Where did you go to get the resources and the, the law support in order to construct a major agreement where, you know, seven and a half million dollars are involved? Um, I think I'm really lucky because Adam, so Adam's uh, uh, our chairman, his day job, he works for a, uh, uh, an impact investment fund. Mm. And so he, he has a lot of experience sitting on the other side of the, the negotiating table. And that actually is, is very, very helpful. In, in this case, though, we have such a good uh, working relationship with SoftBank that it was actually pretty pretty simple. Really? That's um, great. To the lawyers, we use Foley Hoag here in Boston. They've been great. Foley Hoag, they're very supportive of the startup community yeah. and spe- especially uh, have a big presence in Greentown. Has it ever all come close to falling apart? <laughs> I don't know if I should answer that on the record. Well, you can also <laughs> but, answer. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did it take to keep things together when, you don't have to tell us what went wrong, um, but like, what did it take to keep everyone together? So or, we, or yourself personally? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was for me personally. It was never. I mean, I, it, you just keep. You just. You know, it's a roller coaster. Sometimes it's amazing, and sometimes it sucks. But even when it sucks, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and so you just keep fighting it until you can't anymore. And we just haven't gotten to the point where we can't. And you know, at th- this point, I'm. This is. I'm probably most excited and feel the best about about Alteros uh, now versus any other part in uh, uh, in the history of the company um, but yeah I mean it's it's a slog like there's there's I'm there's can't be any startups that don't almost fall apart at least once I mean we've come close to running out of money uh, we've had you know issues with the technology early on um, yeah, all sorts of challenges. I mean, the, the the worst one is when you almost run out of money because without, you know, once you run out of money, that's that's it. And we've come very, very close. Uh, thankfully, not recently, but in the early days, we came Definitely. very, very close. And we had, like, you know, government research grants come from heaven out of nowhere uh, at the last minute that we weren't expecting more than once. <laughs> so the trick is just keep fighting. Yeah, as as my partner says, you know, you have to have a lot of balls in the air because you never know which one's going to land. Mm-hmm. So that we kind of take that approach. Yeah, cool. So I was talking with somebody else recently. I don't remember who. They were saying that the the spark of insanity that it takes to start your own company and make that first step um, isn't always helpful for continuing to keep going. A, do you agree? And B, uh, how do you continue to stay motivated and avoid burnout? Yeah, I mean, certainly a four or five person company is super different than a 30 person company 
and presumably that's super different than a 100-person company and a 500-person company. So my, my role at the company has is, is changed a lot. And like that's one of the cool things about the job is like I learn so much every day and kind of figure out. And, and, and my literally my role just evolves as the company evolves. Um, in the early days, uh, so I, I, back at MIT, I was on the uh, solar car team. And, you know, we had a tiny team that had to build you know, design and build an entire solar car and then race it across America and then race it across Australia. And we, you know, we had to be super, super scrappy um, and just like get a whole lot done with very few people, very few resources. Um, and so that was, that was a just immensely valuable education for me to start the company and run it in the early days where we had very few people, very few resources, and we just had to get a ton done. So we basically... You know, we we basically bootstrapped the world's first functional airborne wind turbine. Um, so in, in the grand scheme of things, the amount of money and the amount of people that we had to do that was like nothing. You know, a tenth of what our what our closest competitors had. Um, and so I think that that sort of solar car approach in the early days was awesome because I mean I don't we wouldn't have been able to get there without that sort of approach. Uh, now we're we're you know, we're not hacking together prototypes anymore. We're actually developing something that can be mass produced and put out into the field commercially. So it's a very, very different skill set. It is not a skill set that I have. Uh, but as we've grown, uh, we've hired in people that have that skill set. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not sort of day to day running the engineering team anymore. We brought in people that uh, uh, have, you know, great expertise. The, the, hardest lessons but most important lessons was learning to let go a little bit and not have to do everything um and and once you figure once you realize that you don't have to do everything then you can focus on finding people who are really good at the things that you're not hmm. um and that's been i think that's what's allowed us to uh continue to grow with you know you'd have to ask my team whether i'm doing a good job but one area that i think is interesting so we started as a as a clean energy company and we made this shift to to telecom and you know as you can imagine a clean energy startup probably a lot of people there are in it because they're super mm. passionate about clean energy yeah. and during that that pivot we only lost one person um and i think that uh a big part of it is and and, and one of the reasons that that i'm there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'm super excited, but you know, a, bi a, a big reason is that we're in many ways we're we're still a clean tech company masquerading as a connectivity company uh, because by by building and deploying uh, a rural network in, in the manner that we are with these super towers, which can replace you know 30 individual towers. Um, it's actually a much more energy efficient way to build and run that network. And one of the things that kind of probably the most shocking um, uh, fact that I've learned on the telecom industry and particularly uh, telecom industry in, in emerging markets is just how energy intensive it is. Mm -hmm. um, so it's consistently one of the top three uh, consumers of diesel in India, the telecom industry. And there was a brief period where it was the number one user of diesel in India. Whoa. Um, and so we can come in 
and build out these rural networks that like right off the bat cut out half of the energy use of, of that network. And I think that um, one of the big reasons that we, you know, we only lost one person through that transition is that what we're doing is still something that we can be super proud of and it still has that, uh, uh, that you know, environmentally sustainable uh, approach to what we're doing. Yeah, that's actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because a big theme of this that I've been harping on over the season so far is the important uh, importance of mission, right? And how if you have a mission-driven company, there are certain advantages you certainly get. But what happens when your market changes and can you continue the mission? There's, um, I, we've heard it referred to in, in our company at least as like, how do you keep your soul as a company as you pivot and change as a startup absolutely needs to do. Um, and I think that's a really great that you guys were able to, and probably thought consciously about how you stayed mission driven, even though as you went through this necessary transformation from the business aspect. So that's really cool. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you plan on ever going back to high altitude wind power? Yeah, we've, we've tabled it for now, but you know, if, if, uh, if everything goes well, then we'll, we'll, definitely get back to the energy side of things. Awesome. What does success look like to you? So some, somebody, people be like, oh yeah, you're, you're a successful entrepreneur at this point. And that's like not at all true because we haven't actually done anything. Like you're not successful until you've actually had an impact in the world. So yeah, I mean, for me, success is actually is actually getting these systems out to the world, actually improving connectivity for for underserved communities, actually doing it in a environmentally sustainable way, and in a in a you know economically viable uh, way. I think you guys have a really amazing story, and I think some people might listen to what you had to say and think, oh well, a lot of it. Uh, was a little bit lucky. Like, I was lucky you got funding right when you needed it. It was lucky that uh, you had another industry to pivot into. It was lucky that you had a uh, co-founder and board member who knew how to negotiate with a large company like SoftBank. And I want to say that I don't think it was luck. I think it was, aside from, you know, real grit on your part, uh, careful preparation and a willingness to let go, uh, like you said. And so when it comes to um, pivoting into another market, it's not like that market just opened up to you based on customer discovery. I'm sure that you were doing and a knowledge of your market. You always knew that this was a viable market for you to move into and your willingness to pivot into that market when it came time, I think speaks volumes to uh, your direction, your leadership as a company. And I think um, having someone like your uh, uh, uh colleague who had the experience to negotiate with SoftBank um, speaks to um, being prepared and surrounding yourself with capable people whose expertise uh, complement your own rather than overlap with some of your own. So um, those are some things that I kind of picked I, up on. I, I, would not, I would advise to not underestimate the importance of luck. <laughs> Fair enough. From the outside, just thinking about switching from not knowing anything about Alteros and thinking about pivoting from high-altitude wind power to telecom, like that, that's not a pivot that immediately makes sense. Um, but that similarly, like 
it's obvious that this was not just a spur of the moment, like, oh, we found money and our investors are interested in this, let's go do this. It was much more calculated and... It, it actually um, took a while to, even to get SoftBank on board. Like, we, really? I, I, yeah, we made the decision and then it was probably a solid six months before they were fully mm -hmm. on board with it. It's, I think it's a really cool transition. And I agree. It, it's a really cool application of the technology. And I liked your using capitalism to a different extent, to in a different direction um, for rural electrification. Or that must be part of the reason why so many of your employees maintained that, that mission-driven philosophy throughout the pivot. It's also still really fun. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that helps. Um, cool. And one last thing I want a trend I think that I'm seeing emerge from the, this season as well is the importance of a, of a willingness to let go and be malleable and change direction. We've heard that from several people that you just can't be too married to your technology or to your darling and you need to be able to be fluid in response to the realities of the market. Um, and you, you touched on that a little bit. I think, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Although I still think uh, uh, be, luck. Be, being lucky is, is, okay. is good. I agree. I've heard that uh, having a successful quote-unquote startup is a pretty good mix between preparation and competence and luck. Like well, it's, preparation and competence beget luck. Like yes, yes, exactly. You, 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 preparation and competence just put you in a position to get lucky. Like, if you are not prepared and you're incompetent, you're just a lot less likely to be lucky. <laughs> but you still have to be lucky. So, thank you, Ben, for joining us thank today. You. Um, and for coming out in the snow. My pleasure. It's, it's been getting a yeah, little first, bit heavier first out here. First actual it's, snow day of yeah, the year. This looks really nice. So pretty. We have a good view here. Um, and in, a th in the show notes, you will find more information on Alteros. Um, maybe, maybe we'll add a picture on the website to one of their systems since it's really cool looking. Um, and if you would like to support the show, please tell a friend, tweet at us at TalkLeanPodcast, um, or leave us a review, a five-star review, hopefully, on iTunes. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to give a challenge this time? I have a challenge for the next one. We don't, but Ben, maybe you can help us out. So we like to end the show a challenge. We, Chloe and I will engage in some kind of bizarre challenge in exchange for five-star reviews. So is there any particular talent that you have or challenging endeavor that you can imagine that we would attempt? Um, that you guys are shameless, not yeah, that I'm Not, not that you, unless you want to. Uh, but that we will shamelessly engage in in order uh, for five-star reviews. It should also um, be noted that we haven't gotten one of these yet. I know. So <laughs> we've been leaving these challenges, and nobody's actually taken us up on them. What do you think? So what I've been working on juggling while on a balance board. <laughs> what? So I think that should be the challenge. All right, deal. I will do my best to juggle whilst on a balance board it should be noted that i have a terrible sense of balance and cannot juggle we will we wear helmets <laughs> yes helmets as well <laughs> wrist guards wrist guards <laughs> okay also please sign up for our mailing list uh our uh fantastic social media manager chelsea manager um, slash wizard yes she uh 
we'll let you know via our email list um, when, whenever a new podcast comes out. And so please go onto our website and sign up for the mailing list to uh, get the show notes delivered right to your email. Cool. So for suggestions, please get in touch. Visit TalkLeanPodcast.com. Tweet us at TalkLeanPodcast or email us at contact at TalkLeanPodcast.com. Thank you all very much. Perfect. Thanks, guys. See you next week or two weeks. Thanks, Ben. Hey, everybody. Just wanted to give you a little tip. Ben's sister has just opened up a new specialty food market and cheese shop in Brookline. It's called Allium. A-L-L-I-U-M. Check it out. Go to alliummarket.com. They have a wide range of artisanal ingredients, freshly baked pastries, full cafe service, and the largest selection of domestic and imported cheese in the area. Go ahead and check it out. That's Allium Market.